Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. Sound a little different. Remote locations, still getting it done. And this is still your, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and ourselves. (laughs) But there's an asterisk, right? A few brief words of warning. Typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary. Often strong language. Sometimes drinking. Pop culture references, spurious allegations. Um, I'm definitely Camille Foster. And uh, this is episode 59, recorded on the evening of June 1st, 2017. And I am not quite joined, but they are on the recording as well. Uh, Matt Welch, editor at large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan of HBO's Vice News Tonight. Both of those gentlemen are in the studio in New York. I am someplace in Beverly Hills. Undisclosed location. And how the hell are you? Really? It is uh, wonderful they, to so be with they you. They are also on the recording. They're, you, uh, by yeah. the way, which is like what an yeah. old person you're says. The They're on the recording. We're, we're, the, we're the pips. He just said it. Yeah. yeah. He just yeah. said it. Yeah. So like we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. like the independents, we're going to get fired. Yeah. I, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Is the independents <laughs> not on anymore? No. <laughs> I keep on tuning in and there's something about hunting for buried treasure or something on the channel. <laughs> something like buried, buried treasure, buried arcs or something. I don't know what's going on. You guys on. need to do more doo-wopping though. I don't do. I don't. Uh, you know, uh, you're actually really uh, fortunate, Camille, that uh, Moynihan and I are even here, uh, considering the arduous near death experience that we had on uh, was it Sunday uh, this past weekend. It's pretty pretty impressive. I yeah. mean, it's amazing that we can walk yeah. after what we went through. Uh, and what the, what the hell happened? I mean, uh, you know, I know a lot of people go through a lot of difficult things in their lives, mm-hmm. and so I don't mean to diminish the pain that they feel. Uh, out mm. there. But I believe at the time you compared it to the Batan Death March. Yeah. yeah, which, yeah. which I thought was maybe a little insensitive. <laughs> uh, but, you know. But Michael and I uh, were, uh, I think, forced uh, yeah. b- by our uh, pre-tween uh, daughters yeah. to play soccer with them for yes. like at least 10 minutes, maybe oh, God, even it was 20. More, it was more than that. It was more than it, that. Like maybe 45, maybe 30 yeah. uh, out on the, the Brooklyn Bridge uh, Pier. And so we're there. Imagine there's like these six soccer fields, huge uh, areas. And Michael at some point notices that, hey, look, there's a goal over there that no one's playing with. Yeah. And so we go over there and his daughter is a terrible, terrible ball hawk. I mean, just, she's a ball hawk. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. awful. And yeah. my daughter, who, who thinks like the way to play soccer is that when no one is doing anything regarding her own father, that she will then do uh, Taekwondo at him with her feet. And, yeah, like, that was, to, uh, yeah. The yeah, that was, it was some level of an assault. Yeah. But the problem was <laughs> there was a, uh, a youthful, uh, uh, person eight, yeah. between 18 and 20, a millennial, sure. clearly millennial, sure. who's like, oh, there's a dude in goal. And he just starts firing balls <laughs> at you. Starts firing yeah. balls. Yeah. And I start thinking like, oh, and, I can play goalie. And Matt, who, uh, by the way, is equipped for this moment, uh, wearing cargo shorts, uh, an angel's hat, and wearing maybe about 30 extra pounds. <laughs> what are you Extra. What? What? Extra. I'm just saying, you know, uh, uh, BMI. I'm just going by the BMI. And, and the airport in Baltimore, right? And so I, so uh, Matt texts me the next day. 
um, you know, and he's like, uh, uh, I can't, I can't feel my legs or something to that, <laughs> something to that effect. And I thought maybe he had gone, that he'd been crippled by, by, by the experience, which he had. And I was like, oh my God, what, uh, like, uh, I was going to say a word that I, I should Dillweed. Say. I think you meant no, dill. I was going to say something about somebody who's a bit of a coward, somebody yeah. who's a bit, you know, we say, our word for um, that in the, in the West coast was Jesse. A Jesse, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because you guys hated Jesse Walker from Reason Magazine, <laughs> author of a great Pre- book on conspiracies. Pre-hated him. Um, and, uh, and then I was like, oh, my God, what an absolute – then I got up, and I was like tw- – I looked like Mr. Burns. I was like twisted over, and I literally from playing 20 minutes of soccer with little girls it was literally what happened to me. And like me, I don't do that. Matt hangs out at the pier a lot, but for different purposes. And yeah, this one yeah. this one was um, was rather Mo- um, aggressive. Moynihan is going from like uh, youthful Williamsburg metrosexual – to Murray Rothbard late era, like without any kind of <laughs> like an insane racist. <laughs> no, no, I'm hey, not going for hey. that. Yeah, the that is that is uncharitable. Yeah, no, Come on. yeah, no, it's uncharitable but true. Um, not, not, not quite. Oh, but we're not going to go there. Here, it's here, fine. Here comes Black it's Ron fine. Paul. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Black Murray it's fine. Rothbard. Fine. Black, you're Black Bard. Mm-hmm. I'll <laughs> not take Black that Bald. You're Black Bard. Is um, it, this part's going on the serious show. Right? Going, yeah, yeah. Anyways, I'm going to change the channel. Mm-hmm. Driving off of cliffs, listening to this. Um, <laughs> so we're happy to be here, Camille. So happy to be here. But you, by the way, um, we were supposed to meet you. I was supposed to meet you uh, with uh, my daughter uh, at uh, Governor's Island. And I couldn't get on the ferry because the ferries in New York are run by, by the city of New York. And of course, because they're run by the city of New York, they do not function well. And I waited for two hours to get a ferry. Never did. But you sent me a little missive uh, from uh, the island in uh, which uh, somebody stopped you and said, uh, love the fifth column. And uh, he was wearing a Chicago White Sox hat, by the yeah. way, because uh, he tweeted a picture. But uh, but that guy seems uh, pretty awesome. By yeah. Way. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's great to meet uh, fifth column fans in the wild. And if you see us out there, especially Moynihan, if you're like uh, like a robber or something like that. But uh, if you're just friendly, like everybody else, so you can say hi to, to me and Camille. It's uh, very fun uh, and yeah. very surprising. I usually uh, pepper me. spray people when they come close to me. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just an instinct. You it's know? the it's the Rothbard in you. It's actually. the Rothbard in me. So, yeah, that was a, that was an eventful uh, uh, Sunday. That's 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 the story. It's about playing soccer with little girls and not being able to move. So look, you know, we take it out on ourselves. We make fun of ourselves a little bit because neither of us uh, are in good uh, physical shape. Mm-hmm. Um, we have psychological issues, but we do a damn good podcast. Thank right? you. Yeah. Right. I, on the other hand, do that. a damn good co- podcast and I am in phenomenal physical shape. <laughs> uh, I am uh, the quintessentially wonderful, yeah. um, reliable, remarkable Camille Foster. If you go, I'm delighted if you, if you to be go, with you today. If you today. go back to some of the tape, Camille, from yeah. the, uh, the independence. You know, uh-huh. he's he, porked up. Really I was in, uh, I was in our friend's, <laughs> our girlfriend uh, Kennedy's office today. Cold doing post show uh, uh, shots of Fireball. I'm not even going to lie about that uh, this afternoon. And she has all of her selfies up. And there's one at the top of me and Camille and her. And uh, Camille and I are fat. It's just like straight <laughs> up. Like that's like, that's 20 pounds ago for me, probably 30 for Camille. Uh, and yeah. I won't say anything I, about Camille. I had a time it's, when, it's I, when I had, closer, lo- I had lost. Closer to 40. Is it really? 40? Yeah. You lost 40 pounds? Yeah, closer oh, to 40. God. 
I had times when I've been a little little chubs, and I had other the opposite time. And I remember when I was on Red Eye one time, uh, the late lamented uh, uh, Fox News program at three in the morning. Uh, I was I was on Red Eye, and someone who was a regular watcher of Red Eye sent me something on Twitter that just said, "You look sick." <laughs> and I was like, wait, that's like one of the words that kids use, right? Like, man, you look sick. And I was like, no, he means like, I look like I have consumption. I, it looked like I was in, it was like a Dickensian look. I was a bit frail. You could I, be, you, you coal play ash in my face. Pallid. You, yeah, you pallid. pallid. Yes, yeah. I, I had a couple of bad. So go and uh, if you have uh, if you have any um, uh, free time, dig up that tape. I think it was I think it was 2014. It was a bad. Well, it was a bad year well, for this, me. This is not fat shaming, though. I, I think what we're yeah. trying to do is we're trying to inspire everyone out there who's had challenges with their weight. We too have struggled. We too have been fatter no, than I'm, we are today. I'm legitimately and fat you can, people. You can do it. <laughs> Hashtag never fly coach. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, uh, Chubbs, well, Chubbs what are you doing out in? What are you doing out there in uh, in California? You got some meetings or something? Yeah, yeah, meetings, business. Just just out here doing business. Um, but uh, but we're gonna do a podcast. It's fine. I'm, I'm All right, good. fine. I'm I just go. I, I, was, got a, I, was, I got a great well, microphone. I've got a remote. I've okay. got a remote set up, and I can't tell any of my secrets. I did go. Um, I had one of the mo- more remarkable experiences of my professional life. I went to a meeting and I had three pairs of like premium sneakers in my bag in addition to my laptop. And I went and dropped them off at this place called Jason Marks. Um, and they refurbish sneakers. Like just like wash them and groom them and make them remarkable again. Um, the only problem is that LA is a terrible place. Uh, with inhumane traffic and to get from Beverly Hills to downtown LA uh, was a painful and terrible process uh, that took me about 45 minutes in each direction. (laughs) So the total cost of getting my three pairs of sneakers cleaned, um, I probably could have bought a single pair of sneakers, which uh, for me is a, it is a small fortune. Or you could have bought a a young house in the state of Mississippi. I just got an email from Sirius that said, um, you're Fired? Um, <laughs> something about the sneaker cleaning segment that nobody was into. I don't know. I'm just. That's I'll read it later. True. But but yeah. a lot of people were passionate about that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to let you. Yes, I'm not going to let you make me feel bad about it. But but you're right. I mean, there yeah. are important matters afoot that we. That yeah, we're we passionate should about other things too. Yeah, and yeah. and I, one thing that did happen in route to drop off my sneakers is I am riding in this car and I have an Uber and I have a Tom Friedman moment. I get into the back seat of this vehicle and the gentleman is listening to MSNBC on his radio. And um, the reporter who seems to be delivering sort of the straight news from location at the White House uh, take on what is happening with the Paris Accords. And at this point, we, we weren't quite sure whether or not the uh, the president was going to pull out, but it sure as hell looked like it. Um, Hey, you see what I did there? He's going to pull yeah, out. Yeah, and, a joke, yeah. And I jump into the back of the car and she gives a description of all of the terrible things that are going to happen as a consequence of pulling out of these accords. And the the virtual, the fact, the absolute incontrovertible fact that, I mean, this is terrible. People are going to lose jobs. There are so many opportunities here. Um, it's all opportunities. There are no shortcomings. And I decided that I would have a conversation with this man who's driving me and has the power to give me four or five stars or zero stars and and ruin my life. Um, (laughs) And uh, we have a political conversation trapped in LA traffic. And uh, 
it was it was awful. And it reminded me of why I hate to talk about climate change stuff and really just don't follow the issue um, all that closely. Like my attempt to just suggest to him that perhaps there might be unintended consequences to a policy of, say, I don't know, like subsidizing solar panels or something. Uh, and he immediately interpreted that as uh, I want to destroy the planet and I hate Earth. Uh, and mostly I just hate talking to people about that particular issue. And I don't know why. Um, so, Matt, can you tell me what the hell is going on? Because I've largely ignored all of this madness. Is it true that Donald Trump has uh, just pulled out of the accord that was actually going to save the planet? Um, but now we only have moments to live, like seconds. I, well, I heard that we're all going to die. Well, first of all, it's true that you can't even take a goddamn car ride without inflicting your sadistic Amazing. ideology on total strangers who have your life your life in their hands. Did he not see you it's in the rearview mirror changing into your black Ron Paul costume? <laughs> <laughs> it's an Uber. You could play music in the Uber. Yeah. I, I mean, I've had plenty of Uber drivers who are playing music. Some ask me what I want to listen to. Instead, I get in, you bombard me with politics. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to fight back. Fight back. That's, what, uh, that's so, it. Lean, uh, lean in. Is that what the, is that the thing? It's lean an amazing in. thing. I mean, I uh, am neither, uh, I'm not a climate scientist and I'm not a climate policy analyst. And it's always funny that people think that if you are a climate scientist, you're therefore a climate policy analyst, which those are two completely different things uh, to begin with. Uh, but it's remarkable. I have seen such incredible amounts of emotion from both sides. If you watch the, uh, the uh, the press conference from the Rose Garden today, they had like a military jazz band out there playing in like their sweet red unis. Um, like it was a huge festival of Steve Bannon happiness out there. I think uh, Jared and Ivanka were nowhere to be found because there had been a struggle within the or a, a conflict within the administration yeah. among the people who were in favor of pulling out and who were against it. And the, I think Rex Tillerson was among that were against pulling out. Um, uh, he was, he was, uh, supported it as the, as the CEO of Exxon. Someone uh, should be counting the number yeah. of times you say pull out. Yeah. Uh, thank you for, that's the second time you've reiterated a juvenile yeah. joke out there in Beverly Hills. I'm after, sorry. After assaulting, uh, sexually assaulting your uh, Uber driver. Uh, no, it's an amazing thing. So the Paris Agreement is a, a, a set of collective aspirations among uh, like bottom up aspirations. Uh, each each uh, country says, I would like to set my uh, our, my country's emission standards as fill in the blank minus X percent from I think 2005 is the benchmark. And the U.S. under Obama, who was uh, instrumental along with John Kerry in, in uh, negotiating this thing, um, put it at uh, 26 to 28 uh, percent from uh, uh, 2005 levels come uh, 2025. They're aspirational. Everybody sets their own goals. There is no enforcement mechanism. And it's like, hey, let's all do this. Let's all say that we want to do this. Um, and then we'll feel pretty good about ourselves. Some uh, of that, incidentally, was to get the United States on board, right? I mean, there's some of these kind of loose uh, goals were kind of loosened up to to, to appease uh, some concerns in the U.S. Knowing that the United States has a history of not endorsing these things uh, on a treaty level. And one of the many— Which we didn't, yeah. Which we didn't, and it was never submitted to the Senate as a treaty level. The last uh, climate change treaty that was uh, submitted to the Senate was uh, in 1993, which is the U.N. framework of, like, trying to figure out what to do about climate change policy. So um, on the right— 
right you have this incredible like ah, we finally stuck it to davos man you know the multilateralist you know we're, as trump said today in the rose garden i was elected to be the president of pittsburgh not paris yeah uh you know the, those elites are not going <laughs> to tell me what to do incidentally pittsburgh went 80 percent for hillary clinton yeah and the mayor came out today saying like and said the very same thing yeah, yeah. said the same yeah. thing and, yeah. and that he's uh he's joining like an alliance of of uh mayors and governors who are like rebelling against the president on uh, climate change policy to which i say yeah, i mean great as long as you're not uh, like w wasting my money necessarily but like there should be a different kind of a uh, federalist uh, approach to all these kind of things so trump exits this thing that wasn't actually at this moment putting any kind of uh handcuffs or strictures on american policymaking or the economy he stresses that we're gonna doing this to fight for american jobs so that you know faceless bureaucrats in brussels can't tell us what to do well in fact they couldn't tell us what to do yeah. however there was a legitimate worry about all of this which is that this thing which was not a treaty would somehow seep into would there would be a mission creep or a legal mission creep so that um, climate activists could use it to sue the administration and its regulatory policies saying, but hey, look, you're a party to the Paris Agreement, therefore you should do X, Y, and Z about carbon emissions. So that's the, that's the smart policy impetus from the right uh, saying that it's a backdoor treaty without it being ratified. Uh, I think, and a lot of uh, Ron Bailey at Reason and other people uh, make the argument of like, why don't you just submit it to the Senate and let's have that conversation and we'll see where it goes from there. Likely it would fail at that at that moment. But on the left, <clears throat> the uh, amount of 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 hysteria that was that this I mean, the quotes are phenomenal. So we were talking about ExxonMobil earlier. Naomi Klein, Donald Trump has effectively turned the federal government into a subsidiary of ExxonMobil. She's always been one who has been calm and measured on most issues. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ExxonMobil, there's an FT headline, front page of like ExxonMobil CEO urges Trump to stay in the Paris Agreement. Sure. Rex Tillerson. I mean, he's, he's been consistent on that. Yeah. I mean, he did that. He did that during the hearings. I, I think most folks who work in the uh, fossil fuels industry uh, probably actually agree with that sentiment. Like they agree that climate change is an issue and something that probably ought to be addressed in some way, shape or form. Yeah. I mean, they have different reasons for doing so and we can we can parse those like some of it is they're they're being uh you know threatened with lawsuits by uh new york attorney general uh, uh schneiderman and, and other people and uh, uh you know saying that their uh sec filings from 15 years ago were insufficiently uh you know uh worried about climate change so like they're facing pressure plus they also have the opportunity to get in on some uh contracts uh, that are more on the kind of green energy boondoggle uh, level. Sure. Or maybe yeah. they just they, – they feel like this is a good idea and let's do it, whatever. But that – it's absolutely not true that this is a result of ExxonMobil telling Donald Trump what to do because they told him what they wanted him to do and he did the opposite thing. He had Tom Steyer, who is the single richest, most influential, uh, you know, anti-climate change guy or environmental climate activist in the country. He threw down more than $50 million during this last presidential campaign alone uh, in only eight swing states targeted only at millennials, only who were thinking about voting for Gary Johnson. Right. So here's a guy who spent more money against Gary Johnson in just eight states by far than Gary Johnson and the Libertarian Party spent on his own campaign. And it was all about global warming and climate science. So saying like, like if you 23 year old person vote for Gary Johnson, then Donald Trump is going to rape the environment in the face. Yeah. Right. So Tom Sire says today, <clears throat> 
If Trump pulls the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, he will be committing, these are quotes, direct, verbatim, he will be committing a traitorous act of war against the American people. Oh, that's pretty interesting. It strikes me as a bit hyperbolic. Uh, well, here. I mean, there's a lot hmm. of hyperbole basically on every side here. And I don't want to be that on one hand, on the other hand kind of guy. But, you know, like you, I'm going to to preface what I say with what nobody that I've talked to today prefaces with, which is these issues are complicated on multiple levels. Not only am I not a climate scientist, I, you know, I agree with, um, you know, the, the vast majority of scientific opinion on this because one must do that. Well, you know, if you don't do that, when you go to the doctor, you're in for some problems, right? I mean, you have to, when you don't know about things, trust the balance of opinion. And this is beyond the balance of, the, of, of opinion. And people who have been skeptical of stuff like this, like Ron Bailey, who have ultimately changed their minds on, you know, you know whether climate change was real or what was a real issue. Um, and I, you know, tend to follow people's leads like that. I mean, Ron has a skeptical mind and um, was skeptical, I think, f for different reasons, sort of in the 90s after a lot of hysteria about a lot of different issues that, you know, things that didn't come to pass, you know, DDT, you know, killing everyone in Africa when it turns out that malaria is a lot worse, right? Um, so that's the first caveat. Nobody actually makes that caveat on the other side, I see, of that, you know, the people who don't know about climate science saying that that the sky is going to fall. I don't know if it is going to fall because the more I read about it, of this kind of voluntary targets and, and different targets for different countries, different countries like China can know oh, China's all on board now, right? They're all on board. And the, the, um, uh, premier of China, not Xi Jinping, but another guy was next to Angela Merkel today saying, we will take the lead on this. We are sticking to it. And as they did at Davos about trade, it's pretty interesting. And the Chinese actually filling all these little political vacuums um, created by the Trump administration. But on the on the kind of emotional front, I mean, this is essentially an emotional uh, argument from what I it's not in actuality, not an emotional argument. It's a very practical argument. There's a policy oriented thing. There's an economic element to it, too. But what I've seen today, the initial reaction has been purely emotional listening to the BBC World Service. And it was Good God, I mean, you hear people thumping on the fainting couches and maybe they have something. Maybe they're onto something. And I do not deny that they might be onto something because this isn't my area of expertise. But I will say that that, you know, from Donald Trump's end, he is fulfilling a campaign promise. And you see all these people saying, well, we shouldn't be surprised. He said it the whole time. No, we should be surprised. He said a lot of things and he's gone back on almost all of them. This was an easy win for him, for people on the right. This was an easy win for him, for Rust Belt types who say, you know, we voted for him to keep jobs in America. And, you know, 85% of, you know, America's coal seams will be sealed up if uh, this, this goes through. I don't know if that's true, but it really makes a very good soundbite. So he was, he was pushing on all this stuff today. And he was doing a very good job of it, right? I mean, that was, he was, he was rhetorically like pretty good on this, despite the fact that 98% of it might be false, but it's a very, very good thing for him to say too. So it's all bluster and hot air from him. And on the other end of it, I mean, most of the people I spoke to today, not even just listening to the BBC really have no idea what's in this, uh, Paris agreement. They don't understand it. I don't either. I admit to it. They don't. I did some some reading on it today, but, you know, I did some reading on it in 2015, too, but I don't pretend to be an expert on it. The thing is, is there there is this binary view of it now is that either you if you are with 
Donald Trump in this, you are the kind of planetary version of the Khmer Rouge. If you are um, on the other side of this, you're an incredibly big hearted person who cares. And if you're going to telegraph this, I don't care how much money we spend. I don't care if it's actually does affect the economy. And again, to be very clear about this, I don't believe that Donald Trump is right about this. I have an instinct because much like trusting 98% of scientists and 98% of doctors on vaccines or something, I trust the fact that 98% of the time that Donald Trump is talking, he's bullshitting me. So I think that's also a safe bet here. But, you know, when I see, you know, all the people that are, that are, you know, hyperventilating about it, if you were to ask them some sort of specifics about it, when they say, well, you know, this is going to peel back climate change, there's a certain, you know, awful lot of trust going on here. Because the, the talking point that I heard all day, none of it was policy oriented. None of it was about any of the goals and what would it, it would cost to achieve those goals, et cetera. It was all about the only other two countries that are not that did not join in were, was Nicaragua and Syria. Syria kind of has its hands full at the moment, and Nicaragua didn't join in because Danny Ortega's government thought it didn't go far enough, so decided not to do anything. I don't think they, they're really doing much of anything but you know having a, a, a flaccid economy, so I don't think it's really going to affect Nicaragua much. But I think the, the general conversation about this is one that is deeply misinformed on almost every corner of it. And I haven't seen someone who's made a cogent argument about what this will cost the United States in real terms, what will cost the environment in real terms. I just don't know. There's a couple of uh, uh, of, of possibilities on that thing. Um, so one, it's interesting to observe already uh, various world leaders and we'll talk about this later in the show. We sort of talk about Trump's visit to Europe and and his positioning vis-a-vis uh, uh, NATO. Um, you're seeing the Angela Merkels of the world, Macron, who's becoming now the heartthrob of the yeah. transatlantic sure. alliance. You know, he said, let's make the, uh, I think, the climate of the globe great again. He said that in English today. Oh. Like, he was, <laughs> I, I, I presume he's going to fly to Pittsburgh Total tomorrow. Total ban on any something, make something great again, comments, yeah. headlines, et cetera. Uh, They're banned. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I can only wish. Uh, but... It's interesting to see this kind of boomerang effect where there are certain people in the world who are like, oh, so since everybody hates Trump, all good people hate Trump, we will take the lead in where, you know, we thought Obama was or we thought America traditionally has been on a variety of other issues to which so like us not uh, being in that agreement might not make that much of a difference, practically speaking, if everybody else is party to it. And also when when you (coughs) couple it with The other thing, which is that right now we are perfectly on track with meeting the agreement, meeting the targets that Barack Obama set that we are now exiting from. There's a decent to good chance that we will meet them anyways, regardless of the fact that we pulled in. So we have we have uh, uh, unannounced or announced our 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 non-intention to meet those uh, targets in 2025 of reducing the carbon footprint by 26 to 28 percent. Yet we'll probably get there anyways, largely, and this makes it all ironic and fun, largely through mm-hmm. the swapping out of uh, the shuttering of coal plants in favor of fracking. And fracking is something that, largely speaking, the people who are weeping today um, have opposed uh, because they, for a variety of reasons, they're worried about groundwater or they just don't like big things having to do with energy production. And so uh, effective wise, I'm not sure that's going to be a huge effect, but one effect that could be crippling and go exactly, not crippling, but it could damage the U.S. economy in ways that will hurt the American worker much more than Donald Trump 
uh, it thinks or, you know, imagines that he's going to help them is that it's possible if the world bands together and says the U.S. is the outlier here, it is possible for the world to impose carbon tariffs on products coming from America. That, that's right. That, and, is, and, that is possible. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I just one final thing is that the political element of this is pretty interesting because, you know, we I assume we'll probably have, have a brief uh, digression uh, on uh, Trump's uh, trip through Europe. Uh, too, but you know what this is allowing the Europeans to do. I mean, you, you look at the polls, and sort of ninety ninety percent of Germans hate hate Donald Trump. Um, it, you know, it's not surprising, by the way, because Der Spiegel, the biggest magazine in Germany, the biggest news magazine, has a new cover today of a screaming uh, Donald Trump head, where his hair is the sun, kind of flying it, about to eat the globe. Yeah. And it says, das Ende der Welt, the end of the world. Um, you know, and then in par- the parenthetical is as we know it. So no one, no one really appreciates Donald Trump in Europe. This is probably more than I experienced when I was living in Europe during the Bush years. But it's allowing um, European leaders um, to sort of collectively come together in their dislike and distrust of, of Donald Trump. And it's just another of those things that allows um, the, the continent and, you know, the United Kingdom also to, you know, look, there was, uh, I heard a pretty interesting interview with, I guess, Susan Glasser uh, from the Washington Post saying that she was doing a BBC documentary on the BBC, uh, the, the uh, UK election. And she said something that I've had the similar experiences. Every British conservative she talked to, British conservative Tory party people, are absolutely horrified and appalled by Donald Trump. You can't even get conservative parties, with the exception of the far right types of, you know, um, you know, Jurt Wilders and people like that to support Donald Trump in Europe. This is just another brick in that wall of creating huge difficulties for with an America's relationship with Europe. Well, before before we pivot to that, the consensus on the empirical observations related to the world's climate, uh, the trend that we've already seen and predictions about what is likely to happen. Um, that's one thing. Uh, a consensus among scientists on specific policy to achieve some outcome, uh, say, 100 odd years from now is probably very different yeah. Um, right. yeah. for, for a lot of important reasons. And the fact of the matter is that that kind of thing is just far more difficult to predict and project. So while I don't pay a great deal of attention to um, a lot of the, the the news related to that, because you just you have to make choices, damn it. Um, so I just don't. Um, I do. I do pay some attention to sort of the general trend. I do have a sensibility um, about public policy and I do get suspicious of subsidies, for example, that are going to say one technology versus another or um, sort of outright efforts to ban completely um, activities like fracking. Look, scientists have limited knowledge as well. Most of them don't happen to know policy in general. Um, and this is also true of, uh, of healthcare reformists who happen to be doctors. Just because you have a stethoscope doesn't make you an economist. Um, yeah. But I, I suspect you agree with most of that. I, I, I Quickly, just to say, because I made that original point, to say that y- you're right. I mean, there's, there's a couple of gradations uh, here. The first one is the 90-odd percent, 98 percent, 92 percent, whatever it is. I mean, the, the number shifts all the time of uh, climate scientists that agree, uh, agree on the general premise that uh, – Global warming is happening. It's uh, largely man-made, and it will have a, a deleterious effect on on uh, uh, the climate and on the earth. For for now, t- to your to your to your point, 
when you get beneath that, that consensus breaks up pretty significantly. And there's some people who, who believe that it's, you know, something that's going to happen tomorrow and we're all doomed. And there's people that are a little more circumspect about it and think that, you know, it's a concern. It's something that we can, uh, it's a treatable disease, et cetera. The reason that I, I stick to the first one and not those sort of kind of sub points it is important to point that out because I think I don't think a lot of people actually understand that, that the the 90 odd percent consensus is the broad consensus of the broad issue. Beneath that, there's a lot of disagreement. But we are dealing with a president right now who called global warming a hoax and said it was a hoax, right. co you know, concocted by the Chinese. I forgot that. To destroy the American who else economy. Who would be crafty enough to come up with a hoax like that? It has to be the Chinese. I, crafty. That's that's a code word. Wow. That's a, yeah. Of course yeah, it is. Yeah, of course it is. Um, but, you know, that is, that is why you have to deal in the broad strokes is that, I mean, he thinks and he reasons like an infant. And there was actually an interesting thing um, the other day of somebody who who did this. Um, I don't know what it was, a, a, a study or an, a, a, you know, analyzed Trump speaking uh, 20 years ago. Versus oh, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, when I saw that, I had noticed it, too. I had I, I saw an interview with him and I think it was with Oprah Winfrey and he was quite fluid. And he was making reasonable points and he was using, you know, words that that weren't kind of, you know, one syllable, two syllable words only. And something happened to that guy. And I don't in and, and the, the people who it's think he's aging. Yeah. Well, the people who think he's clever uh, think it's just a, a rhetorical trick, much like, you know, when you pull out of Paris, you're making all these points about the working man in America. And it's just that it's part of that thing. I'm using simple language for simple people, which, by the way, is, is should be insulting to those he's actually trying to address. But, um, you know, anyway, I think that that actually is onto something. I think that he's deteriorating slowly. But when you deal with somebody like Trump and he, he, he's speaking of it in this top level way and says doesn't exist. I know it doesn't exist. It's a hoax. And we're all being rooked by, you know, Scott Pruitt, who was on um, the EPA administrator, who was who was um, was on Jake Tapper's show today, uh, did about eight minutes of battle with Tapper. And, you know, he's a politician, basically. He's become a politician. He's deflecting. He's swatting things away. He's answering questions that are not the one asked. And by the way, if you ever go on TV, that's the trick. Yep. And everyone knows this. And you say, you know, what do you think about uh, quantitative easing? And if you don't know anything about it, you say, you know, quantitative easing is a very contrary. It's a very interesting thing. And it's a, we deserves our attention. But I think the real question is, and then you answer a different <laughs> question, right? He was doing a lot of that, but he was doing it in a, in, in a sort of more fluid way, I think sort of unconvincing. But Trump doesn't operate on that level. So when he, and, and, and by all accounts of meetings that he's had with foreign leaders, it's not a put on. He does that to other people like Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Um, oh, no, sorry. Jens Stoltenberg, who is the the um, the Norwegian former prime minister who's the head of NATO now, had uh, told somebody that uh, his meeting with Trump, that he just didn't understand anything and had, I think, what was the quote? He had like a 12 second attention span. He was just zipping around between things. And, you know, that's slightly disconcerting. It should be disconcerting to anyone. Well, that's that's uh, the kind of sets up uh, uh, a discussion of uh, of Trump's visit to Europe there and uh, specifically yeah. Angela Merkel's reaction to it, which got a ton of press and thumb suckeries out there, including some that I contributed myself Um uh, when she said, having met with him and seen him now, 
uh, we know that we no longer, you know, the fate of Europe no longer uh, completely relies on other people. We can no longer completely rely on the United States to uh, to uh, shape the destiny of Europe. So somewhere in there, very interesting set of word choices from her, and people totally freaked out about that because uh, the interpretation and. David Frum at The Atlantic, it talked about this in terms of a catastrophe. Uh, a lot of people using very strong uh, language about how a 70-year-old alliance now no longer is centered in the heart of Washington. It has to be uh, picked up uh, in Germany and uh, and France. Um, and she was just saying, after having seen him and talked to him, I no longer have faith in uh, America being the center of this uh, anymore. And it's interesting because I think he got there partly through uh, Moynihan's kind of aforementioned, uh, you know, 12 second attention span, blurting things out, uh, nattering on about Germany's currency manipulations and its trade deficit or the U.S.'s trade deficit with Germany, um, speaking constantly about how uh, NATO partners owe the U.S. money because of like uh, not spending enough on uh, NATO in the past which is just not true. It's not how it works. You see the point that he's making, and it is a point, which is that uh, countries have essentially been engaging in free riding as the U.S. Sure. has ponied up more in terms of spending and manpower and technology and all that kind of stuff. Totally true. It's also true, and this doesn't get mentioned enough, that for a long time that was by design from the United States. First of all, we didn't want and nobody in the world wanted Germany <laughs> to be spending a lot of money on its military. Yeah. Uh, and that yeah. was true through the 90s. That was true essentially through the early aughts. Um, uh, and, and that was also true for Japan. Um, but it was also true that the U.S. wanted to be the, the, the single unipower out there in the world. But so Trump has a point behind all of this kind of bluster. And what strikes me as interesting is that a lot of people have mentioned about how this was a watershed moment for the transatlantic alliance and, the, and these relationships and everything like that. And I'm not saying that it's not like I'm holding up open the possibility that it is indeed a watershed moment. Maybe uh, this presidency coming on the heels as it does with an Obama presidency, which didn't didn't have a lot of warmth, actually, with traditional NATO structures, particularly with Central Europe and a Bush presidency, which called, you know, Europe old Europe because it was uh, being intransigent from his point of view in the Iraq war. But what is the uh, reality coming out of this? Angela Merkel saying Europe needs to take uh, uh, charge of its own fate. And Emmanuel Macron, uh, who is now the, the, the darling of, of everybody, um, doing this uh, super grip handshake, which has been diagrammed now in a thousand different newspapers of like clutching Donald Trump's hand so that he's not out handshaked. But then um, I think as importantly, the next day or, uh, or yeah, on Monday of this week, uh, being in a press conference with Vladimir Putin right in front of him saying that Sputnik and RT are organs of propaganda in, uh, intended to disrupt our democratic processes. And also, you know, his administration is terrible on gay rights and other kinds of things, just speaking kind of boldly and in people's face. So we have a French president now who's taking kind of uh, uh, some sense of charge of European Europe's approach towards uh, incursive Russia. Uh, is that the word incursive? Probably not. Doesn't no, matter. But that's fine. And uh, and you have Angela Merkel saying that Germany should be uh, more in charge of things. Like as a goal, as a as an end product. There, I'm not 
weeping about that. And I say that as someone who identifies as like a transatlanticist. I I feel bad when that relationship is frayed. I think that that has been a great uh, guarantor or, or a helper of peace throughout the world over the last 70 years. And yet um, it has created pathologies. And somehow this Trump behavior, which is boorish and fact challenged at many uh, levels, maybe it is actually helping uh, a sense of more responsibility for people taking care of their own. Moynihan, am I crazy? Um, you're not crazy. I mean, I I, I like the, I, I think this is very similar to Camille's argument uh, about the kind of chaos theory of Trump, uh, which Camille made a lot sort of between the election and, um, and the inauguration of that, you know, <laughs> if that this could have a good effect on government of, of, of somebody being somebody like Donald Trump being sort of as destructive and horrible. Uh, Matt, you should know that that is a sneak this. I think he just dissed you. No, it is. No, no, no. It's no, actually it's not. not. It's not. No, it's not. no, I. But there is a but there. The but is that it, it will it actually have that effect, which I don't know if. Well, we're, we're waiting and seeing on 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 Camille's uh, prediction. But uh, on this, like, what are the downsides of this? What is the downsides of a fractured Atlantic relationship? I mean, if the downside is that the Europeans foot. Uh, more of the bill for their own defense. I mean, look, I mean, you know, Trump has been and, you know, we give the guy credit for saying things that are transparently true and not controversial, that 2% of your GDP should go to your your, your defense, which is the NATO agreement that, that a lot of countries aren't paying their share. Yeah. Yeah, the Trump administration, the, the the Obama administration was actually beating up on the Europeans about this, too. And, you know, there's, there's a certain point. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you know, collect a debt that people don't feel like paying. You know, there's, maybe, there's no collection agency. For, maybe for what the, you can do is browbeat them at every turn, which Trump has done. Obama did a year ago. And if you're like, oh, OK, maybe. But now Trump makes it front and center. Maybe his approach is going to provoke better results. I doubt that. I mean, I mean, you know how pigheaded European governments can be amongst each other. And you know how they are, especially with an aggressive uh, American administration. I mean, this is we're, we're at a point here of, of just kind of creating needless dysfunction. Uh, I don't think that there I, I hope that they'll that the Trump administrations will, will mistakenly get some good results out of this posture with Europe, out of this kind of machismo, I mean, pushing out of the way. Uh, I kept on saying the Moldovan or Montenegrin president, right? Montenegrin president. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Let's be it does. He's the uh, new one. He he's the new been one. admitted, but whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. and, and like this, this kind of stuff in this, this schoolyard stuff that by the way, Macron should not get credit for this. I mean, people are like, he was so amazing with the handshake. It's like, no, this is like, this is no, lowering yourself to this level of like, I'm going to out handshake him and I'm going <laughs> to hold his hand and I'm going to squeeze it really hard. And I'm like, what is this? Like, Seriously, what are you doing? <laughs> Grow up. Are we really at the point of, of um, international politics that our infantile bully of a president who is literally shoving people out of the way to get in the front of the pack because he's the president of the United States, that everyone has to match him in infantile behavior? Come on. Macron is seeing this. By the way, this is a great political opportunity. Trump provides a great political opportunity for so many European leaders who are flimsy, who are weak, who don't mm -hmm. have a lot of people on their side in their own country. I mean, Merkel has had enormous uh, amounts of problems. Sede her party has gotten, you know, had some bad results in local elections. And she gets to position herself when Der Spiegel has covers of, you know, Donald Trump as 
Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, like beheading the, you know, <laughs> beheading Lady Liberty and stuff. She gets to step in here and say, you know, I myself in the European sense and in the German sense am a conservative. I'm going to show this boorish knuckle dragger exactly how we do things. And people say, yay, because we all hate Donald Trump. 90% of us do in Germany. Same thing is true in France. Macron was a default choice because the other choices were so repulsive, you know, mm -hmm. and he's, he's not, he's not, he's, it doesn't come in with a very strong mandate. Um, Theresa May, by the way, who had a slightly, you know, uh, nice relationship with Trump when she visited um, when she visited uh, Washington, has gone from a 20-point lead in the UK election, which will be uh, in a week. So that will be, I guess, next Thursday. Yeah. Um, and she, that's been, been halved, and now even less so, to a psychopathic, bearded, woolly-headed, woolly-sweatered-wearing loser who used to have a show on Iranian television. <laughs> <laughs> Good God, people. He's a chavista, well, and, he, well, and, and the, he's gaining ground. I mean, is, I, he's helping. Weak candidates in Europe. Isn't that, Michael, I mean, at least in, on some level, I mean, I think it bolsters a, a point that I've made a few times um, because I'm, I'm, I make points over and over and I just say the same thing over and over. Um, <laughs> but, but it's so good. It, infant, <laughs> you said infantile earlier. Yeah. Uh, and, and suggested that, that Macron and the president and, and this is all yeah. look, where, look where our politics is. But but in a way. Like there are severe dysfunctions, uh, both domestically and internationally in our politics and have been. And mm. what is interested, interesting about these mutual hatreds, I, I am inclined to agree uh, when we talk about sort of the probability of them getting things done. Your mutual hatred for Donald Trump will only carry you so far. The, the, the resistance domestically here in the United States um, is not coming together and congealing around an ideal that is likely to be a, a winning strategy for them going into the future. It is still the case that Donald Trump somehow is the, the walking dead president, uh, that despite the fact that he keeps getting shot um, everywhere, but apparently in his brain, he just keeps moving. Um, he's doing it to himself for the most part. It is not you guys. Um, and you guys don't have a strategy and there is still sort of a schism between uh, the, the Sanders faction and the, the mainstream Democrats. And in much the same way in Europe, uh, the EU still has severe problems. There's Brexit, which you just alluded to. Um, France has its own major significant problems there. Um, and you can engage in all of the, the, the stupid, idiotic handshakes in the world. Uh, none of that fixes those underlying problems. And I suspect that in very short order, um, you uh, will we'll see things kind of return to return to normal. Um, and by normal, I mean, continue to, to degrade uh, in important ways uh, with respect to their relationships and with respect to the, the precarious economic um, situation uh, that those that those countries face, both with respect to their their massive deficits and their huge um, unemployment issues. So, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I mean, what Trump has done is he's been a great boon to those people who are weak, ineffectual, do not have kind of forward and future thinking policies about um, economies in Europe that have been sclerotic and have had massive unemployment and are quite pleased with 10 percent unemployment. It's a, kind of a, a good showing in some places in Europe, in some places like Spain, who have youth unemployment that's like up in the 40 percent region. Last time I checked, it was last year, it was about 45, 44 percent or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's basically a great he's providing them with a great platform for deflection is that you kind of have this mutual enemy in the 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 sort of traditional enmity to the United States in Europe is now being 
has a, has a little bit of a backbone to it. It's kind of the closest thing I can I can I, I can remember is probably the is probably the first years after the Iraq war in Europe. I mean, Reagan and, and you know, missiles going into, into West Germany and stuff, we, mm. very similar in a way. But this is a special kind of hatred because the, the, the conservative parties in all of those countries at the time you could find people that were big boosters of the American president, right? You could definitely the case with with Margaret Thatcher, uh, definitely the case with Helmut Kohl for the Reagan administration, Reagan years. Um, you know, less so in France at the time, but during the Bush administration, you you also had. Uh, you know, Jose Maria Aznar, who is the, the, the you know, leading um, Spain at the time and, and brought troops for the Iraq war. The same thing with Denmark at the time. You had conservative parties that were after 9-11 very much in the American orbit when it came to how to deal with terrorism and how to deal with foreign policy. And they didn't necessarily like that Bush was a little slow witted and he was, you know, not so good on the stump. And he'd, you know, make these, you know, um, you know, these these comments like like smoke them out and, you know, uh, uh, mission accomplished. And he was a cowboy. He was a cowboy. That was the yeah. thing. Every cover of Der Spiegel at the time was a pair of cowboy boots on, you know, kicking up on top of Europe. But Trump literally cannot find allies on the continent outside of the parties that are run by bananas people. So that's that's an interesting <laughs> development. Does that mean anything? I think it does, but but I, I one, you know, I, it's one an sense, interesting, yeah, go one ahead. One sense in that I think that it might mean something is that uh, particularly having to do with Russia. I think there will be, uh, and, and ultimately I think also uh, uh, the common defense. I think that, that the EU and NATO within the EU is going to be, or the, EU part of NATO, let's say, European part of NATO is going to take a more kind of robust sense of personal responsibility for things, even if it's just intellectual as much as anything else. Like we are the guardians of this transatlantic flame right now. And more importantly, they'll take the lead, I think, with uh, confrontation of Russia as it uh, attempts to meddle in especially Central Europe and it's and it's a near broad in a sure. way that, that it has not. I mean, Germany actually has been pretty soft on Russia historically uh, for, you know, Ostpolitik reasons during the Cold War and for, uh, I think, more economic reasons or pragmatic reasons more recently. And I think that might be over now. I think that they now that Merkel has Macron uh, next to her, I think she might uh, uh, be sensing an opportunity there. So it might it might change things there on the margins. And look, it's all, I, I it's wonder, all, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. No, I was, I, I, I'm just, I'm listening to you guys talk and I'm, I'm wondering about sort of our domestic situation here. And for all of Trump's incompetence, I mean, the fact of the matter is that he's been somewhat successful with some uh, deregulatory stuff. Uh, and one wonders, I mean, if the United States is perhaps the, the tallest midget in the room uh, economically, um, like, can he potentially Magoo, Mr. Magoo his way? Um, to a, a, a rather successful question mark asterisk presidency, um, where he has the economy is performing well enough, and at some point, uh, folks are forced to grudgingly give him credit for things. Um, and by give him credit, I, I mean it in the in the sense that presidents are always given credit uh, for things that they probably don't deserve credit for, uh, and in some cases, uh, in like ways, uh, given uh, criticism for things that they don't necessarily deserve criticism for, while while we ignore a, a universe of other things. I, uh, um, 
I wrote that's just a random thought, perhaps. I wrote a uh, cover story for Reason um, uh, called that deregulator with a question mark, which I think violates some kind of Wikipedia law about uh, headlines and question marks. All uh, right, like <laughs> yeah. the, it's supposed to be that yeah. the answer is always no. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Uh, I think in this case, the answer is a qualified yes. Uh, I mean. Um, for 20 years, there was this thing called the Congressional Review Act where Congress could reverse recent uh, regulations that it found uh, onerous or didn't like for whatever reason. It was used once in 20 years, which was right after George W. Bush got elected, some kind of armchair uh, regulation. It's been used 14 times, I think, uh, under uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you have a time window. Uh, so it's like the last six months, essentially, of the previous administration. But they they undid 14 regulations. There's a slowdown. He, I mocked at the time uh, this uh, uh, executive order uh, talking about how uh, it, instructing all regulatory agencies that for every uh, one new regulation that uh, they have that they're uh, suggesting they have to go back and find two to kill. And I thought I, you know, I, and I talked to a lot of different people who were um, from a kind of deregulatory or regulatorily skeptical point of view about this. And at the time, they're like, ah, it's just a gimmick. They'll find like the two most toothless, pointless old regulations um, and they'll uh, cancel those out and then they'll accept the new one that imposes a $150 million, you know, cost in the economy or whatever. But actually, reporting since then uh, has indicated that there is a kind of a massive regulatory slowdown in addition to, and this is probably the most important thing, especially for those listeners who don't necessarily agree with my point of view of that regulatory slowdowns are kind of generally good. Um, there's the people that he's appointed in places like uh, the uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration and the FCC, there are people who are actually serious policy reformers. The guy who's head of the FDA now um, rightly points out that the FDA process is just slowing the uh, uh, introduction of new interesting drugs on the market and people will die if the drugs take 10 years to get to market instead of five years. If we don't allow for the same types of experimentation that allowed uh, new AIDS cocktails to be developed. I mean, basically the reason why we held HIV and the spread of AIDS at least to a pretty good uh, you know, standstill or a stiff arm, a Walter Payton-like stiff arm, um, is that we gave those drug developers kind of a buy from the usual system and said, okay, you can go ahead and experiment a little bit more here, including on live patients and figure stuff out. And with the unraveling or the uh, the uh, discovery of the human genome and all these kind of new drug therapies that are coming out of that, the FDA needs to revamp its processes. And we have someone in charge now. And uh, and Donald Trump spent three paragraphs talking about FDA stuff in the State of the Union address. Didn't get much play. I mean, there's a there's a, a, a girl in the audience, a woman, I think now, who had a life-threatening disease. Her dad, in kind of like a Dallas Buyers Club like uh, maneuver, went and invented the own drug to keep his daughter alive. It was a really moving moment. And again, because it doesn't fit into our political scrum, no one really talked about it too much. But so in addition to kind of regulatory slowdowns, there's also a legitimate reform that is happening here under Trump. There's only the question is how much can be done simply through uh, the executive branch and how much do you want to have done simply through the executive branch? Congress actually needs to do things. You can't just say, uh, let's you know get rid of the Department of Education like Thomas Massey 
has wanted to do, and I think he talked about that on our program previously. Um, you know, the underlying legislation that that has the federal government spending a bunch of money on the, on education is from 1965. You have to undo that. So Congress has to take a more active role in doing those kind of things. But yes, Camille, on the question of regulation, uh, Trump, I think it's already safe to say, is certainly the most active deregulator uh, since the era of Reagan and Jimmy Carter. And just for our, you know, the the, the our, uh, our our left leaning spouses of our libertarian listen, listeners, and I know this is an actual group of people, lots of them, um, like who not big fans of reason necessarily, but they listen to this and like this. Um, Jimmy Carter uh, was the trailblazer in deregulation, not Ronald Reagan. It's it's this weird myth that came because people didn't want to admit um, that a lot of the initial push for deregulation came not just from a Democratic White House, but from liberal academics like Alfred Kahn from Teddy Kennedy, from Ralph Nader, all these people, uh, Stephen Breyer, all had uh, uh, elements of this. So Trump um, is already the biggest deregulator since Reagan and Carter, and he might even exceed them, but he won't be able to exceed them unless Congress gets involved. And Congress right now is run by a bunch of gutless dullards. You know, look, the 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 other, you know, I would I'm willing to believe that, you know, a, a broken clock kind of thing and there that some good might come out of this on, on certain issues that I care about. I think on balance, though, uh, I'm not terribly confident uh, that you know, in one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that he decides to go against almost everything that he and the wizards like Stephen Miller, who wrote a lot of these speeches uh, during the campaign and Bannon too, um, that that he goes against that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that he, the things that he said, he didn't mean. It's not a good place to be where you're hoping that the president will not do what he campaigned on and what he promised to do. And I frequently find myself wishing for exactly that outcome. Yeah, with, me too. Me too. Me too. What's an example? What's an example of, uh, of like a thing? Uh, for for Trump. Yeah. I, well, I mean, anything on trade. Yeah. I mean, trade, for instance, um, you know, he was seat of his pants stuff. So you have to yeah. um, keep a lot of that in mind when he says, you know, a 40% tariff on Chinese imports which would be catastrophic for the American economy. There, the, the, the kind of black and white vision that he has of globalization, globalization is an unstoppable force. It is not something that you can turn on and turn off like a spigot. And he seems to have and has approached it that way, that we got to stop this globalization. Like, how, how do you plan on doing that? When there was some factory, I can't remember which one it was, that said, uh, you know, we're going to send some jobs to Mexico. And he said, you know, when I become president, that's not going to happen. It's going to how? stop. Yeah. How is that going to stop? Well, I'm going to, you know, create all these new onerous things that are basically regulations on American businesses to prevent them from participating in the global economy, handicapping the American the American economy. So when he says things today um, or, you know, in, in the wake of pulling out of the Paris Agreement about the American economy, I hear that, you know, in the voice of someone who knows nothing about the American economy. And so I don't trust him on this other stuff. There, there is a uh, website and I'll, I'll tweet a link to it. Um, that it's at the university of Chicago, I believe. And they, what they do is they canvas economists on issues. 
So it'll be any any issue, you know, minimum wage, whatever it might be. And they take people from economics departments all over the country. And it's usually the big economics departments, you know, you know, Princeton, Chicago, Yale, et cetera. And they get a kind of put a sort of numeric value on what the consensus opinion is. And, you know, most of them are kind of split and they have a thumbnail photo of every of every professor and a little a little blurb of what they think about this issue on globalization about the, it being a net positive for the world and for the American economy, it's something like 98%. There's like mm. one person who's like, well, we don't know if the good outweighs the bad for X, Y, and Z reason, but there's so much of an outlier that it's like, you know, the guy at MIT who doesn't believe that global warming exists. You know, I mean, that's, there, there are going to be those outliers. That's fine. But Donald Trump yeah. speaks in in this way as if, you know, this is, also unsettled science. I mean, if we just look at history in the past 20 years and the number, I, I, this is when I become a sort of internationalist and, you know, you join the kind of socialist international here and think I, I care about the, the well-being of people outside of the U.S. too. And that the people in Vietnam. Cuck. The, yeah, exactly. And the people in, you know, of India, the people in China have been vaulted out of poverty, uh, living off, you know, a penny a day. Because of the effects of globalization, which Donald Trump wants to put sand in the gears and grind to a halt. But, you know, all of his ideas on this, even the ones that have been, you know, they're the slogans during the campaign. Even the ones where he put a little bit more meat in the bone are absolutely bananas. And they're they're, you know, run against everything that every mainstream economist believes. He finds people who who agree with this stuff and he stocks the administration with them, which actually was troubling. I thought that maybe it would be the thing where this is my kind of, you know, post Lindberghian foreign policy. I'm going to be very isolationist. And by the way, most of my appointments here from, you know, Mattis on could have been in a Jeb Bush administration. Yeah. Right. I thought maybe he'd do the same thing on economic issues. It doesn't seem that he has. So deregulation. Great. I'd be, be fantastic. I really hope that he doesn't follow through on his campaign promises about the economy in a bigger sort of more global way. I should point well, out well, uh, just quickly. Sorry, Camille. Uh, mm -hmm. I should point out that uh, of the people that I was talking to, people who live and work in D.C. on deregulatory issues. Yeah. Uh, some would say like, yeah, he he might be the greatest deregulatory president ever. And if he launches a trade war, uh, it will uh, on net, it'll be uh, bad. Uh, for regulatory, that that is a regulation. You're making everything more expensive, and uh, the effects on the economy would outweigh the effects of having you know 39 uh, regulations in the first four months of the administration instead of the 118 that Barack Obama did. Well, Welch and Moynihan, I am really happy for both of you guys, and I'm gonna totally let you finish talking about all this smart stuff. But the most important thing in the universe is that Keith Oberman uh, has proved definitively that Mike Flynn has flipped. And it's very strange that we have spent all of this time talking about globalization and climate change and all these other important issues, and we're not talking about the most important thing in the universe, uh, and that is Russia. And the fact that the president has been co-opted <laughs> by the Russian government, has been working yeah. with and collaborating with the Russian government. Um, and at this very moment, uh, well, not at this particular moment, but in general, at this point in time, there are concurrent investigations taking place in Congress, the FBI, the CIA, within various places inside of the, the massive uh, deep state bureaucracy. Um, that's, a, that's a charged phrase to use. Um, but um, 
Mike Flynn uh, is continually under investigation, has pled the fifth apparently, and then would not respond to subpoenas and maybe now will be complying and forwarding documents to the investigating bodies. Um, We have Comey, who it looks like will be coming to testify before Congress on Thursday of next week. Um, So there are people anticipating that he might indicate that the president pressured him. Um, And the president's son-in-law, Mr. Kushner, he is the most nefarious person of all. Um, Last Friday, so this was after we recorded, um, news broke um, for like the third time, apparently, um, that he had been working on a a back channel with the Russians, uh, something he was talking to the Russians about the Russian ambassador prior to uh, the the president actually taking office. Um, And not only was he working on back channels, uh, he, to the surprise of the Russian ambassador, according to the reports, was interested in conducting these back-channel conversations via Russian secret services. I know that we are all um, sort of generally quite quite skeptical of the most hyperbolic concerns um, around all of this, but the Kushner thing in particular, which just keeps coming back um, and has just created like a deluge of of additional stories, uh, wondering whether or not his career is over, wondering whether or not he's finished, um, and has really tied the Trump administration in knots, um, and the forthcoming Comey testimony. I mean, do you guys expect anything different to come out of, to come out of any of these things? I, I remember not too long ago when Mike Flynn was actually willing to do a deal. Uh, of course, there were a bunch of stories, oh my God, this is it, the, fi- the other shoe is going to drop. Um, but they wouldn't take the deal. Uh, and then when he pled the fifth, the question became, well, what does he have to hide? Which, of course, is uh, is pretty routine in Washington. Do you guys see anything different on the horizon with the uh, the the sort of emerging constellation of um, conspiracies uh, swirling around the Trump administration with uh, respect to Russia and the various investigations? The one thing I see that's different is that Comey will testify on Thursday. And with all the swirl of things, including uh, Kutchner, uh, Kutchner, I think is how we pronounce his name, um, and and elsewhere, and just like the fever dreams of people who want to connect the dots and the collusion that happened. And there's also one that you did not mention, uh, Camille, that, uh, that broke today, uh, again being Thursday, of Jeff Sessions. Right, the part, third meeting, the the third meeting, uh, kind of yeah. like the third nipple um, uh, that uh, Moynihan has, and his fingering right now as we speak. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, look, the, we're, Jeez. I mean, so much judgment over here. Uh, it, but the of all of the uh, accusations, like tangible, we might see some evidence. We can understand what the evidence is. Accusations right now, as opposed to the Louise Mensch kind of like, uh, you know, the the secret uh, Supreme Court marshal handing out the indictments in the Eastern District Court of Virginia kind of uh, nuttiness out there. Um, it's basic obstruction of justice. Did Donald Trump obstruct justice by firing Jim Comey and or telling him at various points uh, like, hey, you know what, what you should do, maybe just uh, drop this investigation thing in a way that is obstruction of justice Um And so that uh, testimony will speak directly to that because Comey will uh, answer questions directly about that. And then the pre-reporting is that he that's what he's going to talk about. He's not going to talk about the contents of the investigation. Um, which he uh, is not going to be able. I mean, what, that Robert Mueller is now taking uh, charge of. He's going to talk about that conversation. So, where 
Trump will get tripped up legally is there, absent us knowing a bunch of completely speculative stuff about what kind of relationship that he has. And we there's reporting on this this week as well, where like uh, like intercepts uh, from I uh, presumably uh, American intelligence of Russians talking to one another, saying that oh yeah, we think we got Trump and his people over a barrel on financial transactions. Well, we don't really know anything about that, so it's all left to our. That's all from the uh, Steele dossier, for at least what we know about it right now. Right, much of which, as Michael has pointed out previously, uh, uh, independent of the the P tape a- aspects, have have uh, have proven to be somewhat uh, credible or at least uh, 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 checked out to a degree. Uh, but it's really no, it's the obstruction of justice. That's what will trip up Trump right now, as far as the evidence that we have in front of us here. And so all of this this uh, storm that's around that people are talking about kind of almost obscures that. Like it, he's going to testify in public and then also in a secret session afterwards uh, to senators, I, I think, um, uh, about that conversation with Trump. And if it looks super bad, um, then that could be bad for Trump, regardless of whether there's fire underneath all the smoke, um, because you just can't get to obstruction of justice uh, especially when you're an unpopular president, um, without it starting to smell bad. But I think as we've uh, talked about here before, like the idea, I mean, Trump is going to cause himself through tweeting, through talking, through acting, he's going uh-huh. to cause himself stupid problems uh, and potentially a presidency shortening problems just by his behavior here. Uh, But if that shortens his presidency in the absence of actual evidence of legitimately nefarious collusion with Russians to take him on some path that he wouldn't have gone to ideologically. And I think that's an important point. And Coulter two days ago tweeted out, I think maybe yesterday, tweeted out something which I thought was kind of instructive, which is that what I think we should do is form an alliance with Russia against Western Europe. Yeah. Classic Ann Coulter. Yeah. But it, it, and, you know, opportunistic. Trolling and opportunistic. Funny, uh-huh. trolling. Yeah. But it actually speaks to a thing. I mean, there was a bunch of stories. Michael Brendan Doherty did a lot that were really good about how the ideology behind Trump's foreign policy is basically Buchananite Pat Buchananite conservatism. And who has written more positively about Vladimir Putin for the last 10 years in America besides Pat Buchanan? There isn't anybody who is like that. And so there's this feeling among people knitting this back to what we started talking about, the Paris Agreement. There's this anti-multilateralist thing. These effetes uh, in Brussels telling us what to do. They're soft on Islamic immigration. It's actually kind of a through line. They, you know, all these people, they just want us to submit to distant bureaucracies that don't have any national legitimacy. They don't respect sovereignty. That is a total perfect, nice overlap with Vladimir Putin's ideas. His come from a position of he sees those those institutions as being directly threatening to Russia, but he also stands up for those goals. So if all if if what we find out at, at in the Comey investigation or the Comey testimony is that there's something that has uh, graduated from not just kind of obstruction of justice, but actual obstruction of justice. And even with and this will be tougher to prove criminal intent, which, by the way, was why Hillary Clinton was never charged, even though she obviously broke the law. But Comey, uh, oddly enough, decided that she was did not have enough criminal intent to make it prosecutable. But if all that happens 
And we're still left with a lack of collusion, with a lack of like head turning activity, you know, taking you down a direction that you wouldn't have gone otherwise. Um, I really fear for this country. Like if you cashier a president because he trips on his own dick, because he's going to, that's who he is. He's a career. Yeah. You elected him. It wasn't me. You elected this guy, but he's going to trip on his own dick. And if he's not actually colluding with Russia to some degree that that is like tangibly nefarious and you get him on on the equivalent of like ticky tack fouls but that are obstruction of justice that worries me you know i first i have to get the image out of my head of somebody tripping on their own dick uh which is (laughs) happens to the best rather impressive um if you're actually doing that um give me a call i have some <laughs> i have some things for you to do um we'll talk about it later it's not i'm not it's not sexual stop love it. love wins uh, i love wins in the end no, Hashtag. Oh, it's, it's not sexual but right. uh no not at all um yeah. but i think that the bigger point i mean you touch on something here on the buchananite thing the bigger point for me is not is is not so much that there's some sort of collusion i mean i still believe that this is probably existing somewhere in the manafort Carter Page nonsense, uh, uh, Roger Stone type stuff. I'm, you know, what those guys were doing is essentially G. Gordon Liddy, you know, Operation Gemstone, which you present to John Mitchell and either he laughs you out of the building or, or, or he kind of gives you a nod and a wink, but the president isn't aware of it, that kind of thing. It doesn't bother me that much because I don't, I don't have a sense right now. I mean, it bothers me. I don't have a sense right now that this is Olbermann-like full froth collusion in which he's tweeted 900 times today some video that he that he made. There's two parties in America that uh, you know the uh, you're either an American or you're a Republican. Republicans are un-American. This is his big thing today. But uh, you know that kind of stuff is a different level of you know heavy heavy breathing, right? But the, to the Buchananite point, it's the one that you should actually be concerned about. The Republican Party should not be the party that is cozying up to Vladimir Putin. I don't think so. And it's not for some strategic interest. That's not why this is happening. It's well, not that alone. I mean, you could you could frame it as strategic interest. But what is it? Ideological overlap. And people forget about this with Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan is not a big fan of the gays. Right. Russia, pretty strong in their position of not being big fans of the gays. And he's been explicit about that point. That point. He's been explicit about another point, the power of the Orthodox Church in Russia. He loves the return of the church, which was which was both persecuted and then became an organ of security, state security, as it is now, too, by the way, uh, of state security during 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 um, Soviet times. It was neutered in almost every way. But there was some collusion there, and uh, too. That's the the second one. I mean, you have the big. The third one is you get people on board by by saying we are relentless in our pursuit of radical Islamic extremists, and we will turn Grozny into a parking lot, and we will turn we will turn it back to the you know fifth century, and then rebuild it with a a Muslim president who's a cutout for Vladimir Putin, does whatever he wants, and we will do the same thing. In Dagestan, we'll do the same thing in Syria. We will expand our borders in our own backyard because these places are rightfully ours. Now, that stuff should 
uh, but you know the the you know America first, a republic, not an empire. Um, Buchananite philosophy, which is not to project military force, right? So there's a weird thing there where people who are anti-imperialists, um, you know, broadly speaking, uh, or that's how they self-identify, the Stephen F. Cohen's, who we mentioned quite a bit in the show, um, who all of a sudden, you know, have no interest in protesting a foreign war when the Russians are involved. I mean, you see the United Nations basically said the Russians have deliberately targeted civilian areas in Eastern Aleppo when during their bombing campaign. Do I, the Russians have vehemently denied that. Do I know that that's true? No, I do. I have I read the UN report. I did. And was there some compelling evidence? Absolutely. We do not see marches in Western Europe upon Russian embassies. We do not see anti-war activity. Now, there might be some fatigue because it's not 2003. It's not the same thing. But you don't see that level of kind of anti-war outrage. The focus is instead on the overlap points, is that Vladimir Putin is, you know, there's not a lot of institutional knowledge in the Trump administration of the Cold War. They've forgotten it. In some ways, that's a good thing. In some ways, that's a bad thing. You don't want to be living in the 1970s. But, you know, Stephen Miller is, you know, 11 years old. <laughs> Donald Trump, if you said the Cold War, he would probably think it was a, a restaurant in Midtown. He's not a clever guy in that way. But, you know, what we see now with, with these people is that their appreciation of Russia is divorced from the old Russia, which, again, sometimes a good thing. But it's also that, you know, without the communism, the Russian nationalism on its own, that chauvinism on its own, that revanchist instinct to take back territory. It's like, well, you know, I, I kind of get that, you know, sort of Spanish. Amer I mean, it's this sort of, you know, Polk in Mexico kind of thing, I guess, is the way they see it. But it doesn't raise the hackles so much. It's also and one final point in this. It's also who's on the other side. So Paul Manafort is, you know, uh, working for Yanukovych. Um, the people that are supporting the color revolutions were all neocons. In Georgia, the people who dropped into Georgia after, after uh, Mikhail Saakashvili became president in that revolution were all neoconservatives. If they can't do it with American, the, the force of American might and the American military, if other people do it, let's support them. That put them on the other side of that, too. So it's a really interesting thing that, that, that so many elements of the Republican Party have become less Russophobic. I mean, Dana Rohrabacher was a Cold Warrior. Dana Rohrabacher is now the congressman from Vladivostok. I mean, he's about as in the tank as you can get. So that change is more interesting to me. But that change requires some knowledge of what's been happening in Russia and what is happening, you know, sort of in inside the Kremlin. And you have to, like, legitimate Kremlinology, not that as a euphemism for other things. But what we get now is just that, oh, my God, the government's been co-opted. Keith Olbermann says there's either Americans or Republicans. You know, we're um, bought and sold by, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell talking to, talking to Rachel Maddow saying, what if the, yeah. the administration is being controlled by Putin? What if this, look, if, if, if they're controlling the administration, they might be really biding their time till this stuff passes over, or they're doing a horrible job of it because those sanctions haven't been lifted. Yes, those two properties, those two Russian compounds seem to be going back into the hands of the Russians, the ones that were seized by, by Obama and everybody was shot, was, was kicked out as a result of the election 
you know, which is, which is almost like no concession. I mean, which is I, almost I like, which is almost like no concession. Serious punishment. No. But we don't know. Uh, the reporting on that was actually kind of weirdly foggy uh, in whether there's going to be a quid pro quo. Well, there's a tweet. Uh, yeah. On getting the uh, uh, the St. Petersburg uh, American facility back up and running, right. which the yeah. Russians well, frozen. Well, I, I mean, look, you guys took the conversation about the the goofy conspiracy theory to a very serious and erudite place Sorry. in mentioning the the Buchananite stuff. But at at bottom, like we have to keep in mind that the Russians are going to win if we ignore the the really crazy hysterical. Um, uh, narrative that Aunt Maxine and and all of the rest of the the folks in Congress are are advancing. Well, I, I mean, I th- I think that let's just go full Greenwald here. Um, go for it. Do it, post Greenwald. No, I mean, if you or or let's let's talk about this from Trump's point of view, which is kind of interesting. If you assume, and I did this, I I uh, I brazenly uh, went up against the Moynihan dictum that uh, if you number your tweets. That just proves you don't have a girlfriend. It proves uh, in your in your case, uh, I would amend that, um, and I'll, I'll tell you off air what I think that it means for you. Yeah, I just don't want to expose you to this to a listening public because I appreciate it's, that it's pretty gross. I will I will say <laughs> that having done this, so I, last Friday I did this uh, thirty nine tweet storm. How many uh, drinks did you have before that? Oh my god, it was one o'clock in the morning on a Friday. Oh my god, yeah. really? Like so, you were like a little busted up. A little, a little. You were like wasted. But I was like, and like tweet thirty-seven. You were when you yeah. were like, what, what? the yeah. number that comes after yeah. thirty-seven. I didn't even like Sergeant Pepper. What? What am I talking about? <laughs> tweet thirty-eight. Magical mystery tour is good. Tweet thirty-nine. Who's leaking? Who's doing all the leaking? What's going on here? Stupid asshole. I will tell you. There's a reason why people number their tweets. Uh, uh, I because uh, they're losers. Yes, they're losers. <laughs> they don't have girlfriends, and every. Goddamn tweet in the storm will have more than 35,000 views. Everyone, every last damn one. It's it's uh, sick. Like, really? People respond to this in a Pavlovian way. And I almost forget why I even brought it up. Uh, but uh, part of it was uh, if you just assume for a second uh, what would happen if that this was a combination of incompetence, uh, acting like a stupid cornered rat, uh, and uh, having like the the shittiest personnel, beginning with Manafort, who's actually I think corrupted by Russian money in a way beyond anybody else in the whole Trump orbit, as far as oh, we yeah. know. Um, yeah. But like sure. you know, you, Jared Kushner is a 36 year old rando who's in governments like making deals. What the fuck does he know about anything? He knows nothing. Um, so like these people are not going to know how to act. Um, plus they have this ideological component, the kind of Buchananite worldview slash uh, Steve Bannon kind of interpretation on this national pop. Populism that that's anti-multilateral. So what would happen if there wasn't a fire underneath the smoke and it was just that, right? Uh, how would they how would they behave and also how would they perceive the world coming at them? I think, and this is at least matches up with how they have reacted, that they would perceive that the world, that the media is 1000% aligned against them um, and jumping on every possible tiny little thing that maybe Obama did the exact same thing as a new profound revelation of total corruption. Um, And they would also have the same uh, reaction about uh, leaks coming from the intelligence community, who, of course, by the way, 
Trump identified as being kind of like Nazi Germany as he was coming into office, yeah. which might yeah, kind of did kind of did that kind of getting under people's skin. So this is a long way of answering your question, Camille. Um, the drip, drip, drip leaks here. Like, you know, we still don't have a transcript of Mike Flynn's conversations on December 28th of last year. We, but we do have but we do have lots of reports on. Yeah, those, but we don't um, have transcripts like multiple sources like. Yeah, the stuff it, it feels like that the way that the leaks are being dribbled, dribbled out are reminiscent of the way that uh, Andrew Breitbart used to dribble out information about the people that he was ensnaring in various scenarios, usually with James O'Keefe. Like, we know this yeah, amount Project of information. Yeah. And people would say, oh, my God, that's not true. And like, oh, that's funny because we had this new video that shows this, right? Um, it kind of feels like that, right? Yeah, you like, walk except it, traps, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't piece yeah. together well. I mean, yeah. it's, the sort of, it's the sort of thing where, like, the, the newest re- 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 the newest revelations uh, with respect to the back channeling are, oh my God, he wanted to use like Russian facilities in order to ha- have this back channel. I am the Russian ambassador and I'm surprised by this. What the fuck are you surprised for? Like mm. I'm your guy. Mm. That's what that's what I do. I work for you. It doesn't make any sense. Like well, none I, of it actually adds up in any sort of rational way. Though there was it's, a leak, there was a leak, of course, after that um, to I think Catherine Herridge at Fox News, which put a very positive spin on on uh, uh, the the back channel and saying, of course, uh, you know, setting it up about Syria, saying that mm-hmm. it wasn't actually his idea to do it at uh, Russian facilities. If it was, actually, that's that's pretty bad business, and you shouldn't be doing that. Um, you, a lot sure of leak came from Ivanka directly. I probably did. It probably came from Baron, uh, <laughs> who was like, you know, twitching in the corner and texting. Oh. What? I just he's a little twitchy. That's all I said. I didn't say anything else. I didn't imply anything. I didn't. Imply, I still don't even say anything about Chelsea. This Clinton. is going to ruin your off limits. <laughs> this is going to ruin your chance of it's, being the next spokesman for Squatty Potty. Well, oh god. <laughs> but this is the, like everyone leaks for, for their own reason. I mean, I I, I think this administration um, is pretty amazing though because they're getting exactly what they deserve in almost every single way. As Matt mentioned, and we've mentioned this on the show in the past, is that when you come in guns blazing and accusing the intelligence community of being, you know, members of the SA and essentially jackbooted thugs, uh, you're going to get some payback because Donald Trump can't think one chess move uh, on the board. But, you know, he's like, you know, can't think beyond that. So he doesn't think when he's running off his mouth, these guys have an extraordinary amount of power and can wield that power in a way that will make my life difficult. He doesn't think that when he is, you know, sort of being difficult with European leaders, they can make his life difficult too. And this is what we're seeing is that the leakiness of this, when you come in and you tell people in the state department, career state department officials, a lot of these aren't political appointments and you come in, there was someone next to me who got a leak from the state department, probably two days after inauguration, taking photographs of documents and just like, here, here you go. It's that these people want vengeance. If you ever, ever work with somebody who gets fired for something they believe is unfair and you're not too surprised when they start, you know, chatting to the press. This is essentially what is going to happen with Donald Trump. And I mean, you know, it could be, you know, KT McFarlane, who I knew was on your show and I've been on shows with her, you know, went from the National Security Council to, you know, the the, the ambassador to Bhutan or something. No, I think of Sri Lanka or whatever. Singapore. Singapore. 
And, you know, that's what you do to, to difficult people. You give them uh, annoying ambassadorships and you send them off and, and they become pliant and they become quiet. But in this administration, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not accusing her of anything. But you, you go down the list of the people that have been sidelined. You create this type of factionalism. You don't understand that oil and water is Bannon and Kushner. And you bring them yeah. in because one's my my son-in-law and this other guy kind of helped me out during the campaign and, you know, brought him on in October or August and he was great. But I, you know, and then give that interview where you say, well, you know, he's, he, I didn't, you know, I don't, Steve's not what you think he is. He's not, you know, in the, the interview of the New York Post where he kind of downplayed Bannon and kind of slapped him down a little bit. All of this stuff creates irritations. And what can you do when you work at an insurance company and someone in your division is being annoying to you? Well, you don't have a lot of recourse. When you're in government and you have a bunch, a braying mob of journalists desperately wanting to take down this administration, you say, oh, that's an opportunity. And everybody is availing themselves of this opportunity. I have never seen anything never. like it. Never. Yeah. Never. Yeah. And never. this is what you do if you're, if you're Trump is you call in Corey Lewandowski. That's oh, what God. you do. Yeah. You bring him in. He gets everyone in line. He starts manhandling folks. With his Boston uh, accent. Gonna, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, What's going uh, on, look, retards? Get out of here. Fucking Kushner. The other thing is, you know, the, the Kushner <laughs> um, the, the Kushner tornado of stories in the Washington Post this week. There was one um, about how he uh, he built a luxury skyscraper using loans meant for uh, job starved areas these insane um, programs that are supposed to stimulate economies. Um, look, I want you to write those stories, Washington Post. I do. Um, I, and I love it when you include the qualifications um, or at least the additional detail that actually this is kind of just the way business gets done in New York City. Um, it, my building was built using exactly the same programs. This is well known uh, that these low income, um, that these programs that are supposed to help low income communities are actually used to build um, 76 story skyscrapers with apartments at the top of them that are 40 to $70,000 per month. Let me just um, interject here for the listeners who might be new to the program that um, Camille Foster is not going to be living in a low income skyscraper. No, <laughs> no. No, not no, yet. No. Not yet. Not, not just yet. Not no. just yet. Um, but I mean, I, I want them to write I'll those make it stories. I also, I also want there to be a broader acknowledgement of the fact that kind of everything like this, all of these programs, 8A, the, the, the minority disadvantage program that's supposed to give jobs to, to, to disadvantaged minorities, which unfortunately is kind of synonymous in the, in the eyes of the government, um, that those prog programs work in the same way that people become millionaires um, manipulating those programs that are ostensibly supposed to be helping people. Um, same thing with HUBZone bullshit. Um, I, I just wish that that, that broader acknowledgement was happening. It is not. Um, I suspect it will not happen as a consequence of this. Um, that's not nihilism. It's just acknowledging the fact. Here's a, um, here's a, here. a little uh, data so, point, uh, Camille. Sorry to step on you there. But, uh, no, no, I'm done. Uh, that, uh, you know, that fancy New York Times uh, office over there by like uh, on 42nd and, and 8th, I guess. Yeah. Right. Governor, yeah. Um, yeah. They built that thing using 9-11, uh, uh, post 9-11 bonds. 
that was uh, ah. supposed to be earmarked for you know the rebuilding after 9-11, which is, uh, you know, as we all know, just devastated Times Square. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 9-11. Yeah. Um, you know, the not, not at all. <laughs> didn't didn't Ann Coulter suggest that uh, they should have devastated the New York Times building? Do you remember, yeah, do you she, remember that? Yeah, she did. Did she say that? Yeah, yeah she, she said did. something about uh, yeah. they should uh, fly their planes. I mean, in the she's been just, just doing this forever. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, uh, she, and, she, she was trolling she's before trolling troll. was a word. Uh, but yeah. like, no, they use that. And of course, they also eminent domained about 40 different businesses uh, to get that space using government. You're right. That's exactly how uh, New York real estate in particular gets done. And that's actually was one of my objections to Trump all along. And I wrote a column about that for the the, sure. the LA Times is like, you know, especially back when there was, what, four candidates left for president, Trump, uh, Sanders, Clinton, and maybe Ted Cruz, uh, that Ted Cruz is right about his New York values rant for the wrong reasons. But like New York values, Trump's values, what has he learned as a Manhattan real estate guy? What do you learn? You learn to collude with government to totally step over the concerns of little people and to become a crony capitalist. It's like, that's bad knowledge. It doesn't it's, apply everywhere at all. And it's, it gives you some really bad kind of uh, uh, attitudes. And it's also- well, it's a, lots of places. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, the business- I mean, this is what we're going to take away from this. I hope Americans will take away from this um, presidency in four years or maybe two years or maybe eight months is that the idea that one is a CEO and a CEO is what's needed for the business of government um, is something that is so off the mark that one wonders if anyone thought even half of it through. Because these lessons don't apply in any way when in the New York real estate business or in um, the casino business or any of these half-assed Trump businesses that he's either run into the ground, Trump University, we've forgotten about that one. Um, you, you, can, you can run over people, you can hit people with a battering ram, and you can destroy them without consequence. And you win and you're in the top of the mountain afterwards. This is not true in politics because there are coalitions that need to be, you know, held together. There are people that need to be assuaged. There are people that need to be bought off in different ways than one would buy off somebody who, you know, owns a piece of property that you want. You have to do the same thing to foreign leaders. You can't, you know, use a battering ram on a country that one has to deal with in sort of negotiations, say, with North Korea. So what we have done with China, accusing them of being, or the president accused them of being behind the global warming hoax and saying that they're manipulating currency, saying that they've done, you know, destroyed uh, American industry with uh, a trade imbalance. All those things he's taken back because he's learning very slowly that he needs the Chinese when it comes to negotiating with North Korea. What the Chinese want for North Korea is for the North Korean regime to survive. They do not want a united Korean uh, you know, country on their border. They do not want a refugee crisis. They do not want an American ally encroaching upon them. So he's basically going back on all this stuff to make sure that he deals with China, a country that wants the, the, the Kim crime family to stay in power. This is how politics is done. It's not how business is done. You knock somebody out and they're out. You own the property and they lost. You don't do that when it comes to a foreign country. You have to deal with them for the entirety of your administration. And, and, and this is what I think he's finding out now, which is, which is a sight to behold. Idiot. Yeah. <laughs> well, hashtag. 
I did want to talk about two stories, um, one of which is the, the fifth most read story on uh, on WashingtonPost.com. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But um, LeBron James is uh, is getting ready to play in the finals. He's and playing as I we suspect, speak, Neil. Yeah, I know. I, I was trying not to think about that. But what I'm probably missing um, is someone mentioning the uh, the horrible thing that happened to his house. I mean, someone vandalized it. Um, and it sucks when your house is vandalized. And when I watched the press conference yesterday, um, I did not get the impression um, that LeBron James uh, was was faking it. I mean, he, he was emotional. He seemed upset uh, about about what had happened. And apparently, and I, I haven't seen any photos of this. It, it, it's odd. I, I also haven't seen um, any account of what was what was sprayed painted on his fence, I guess. Um, apart from someone saying N-word. I don't know if it was nigga or nigger, um, but N-word was apparently scrawled on his, uh, his, his door. Um, I find myself more than a little frustrated with uh, stories like this um, and even the response to them afterwards. And the, the thinking here isn't so much that you, you necessarily have to ignore this, that you have to deal with it, that you have to tolerate uh, racism when it rears its head. Um, and you know, when, when LeBron says stuff like, you know, my family is safe and at the end of the day, um, they're safe and that's the most important thing. He's right. You know, it sucks when, when one of your various, uh, palatial estates in some important city, uh, is, is vandalized. It's terrible when that happens. Trust me. I, I know. Um, <laughs> you do, but yeah, not really, but I can imagine that it kind of sucks. Um, but, but that's true. Um, what isn't true, um, is, the 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 rest of the statement when he goes on to suggest that no matter how famous you are no matter how many people admire you being black in america is tough if you believe that statement that statement which is absurd on its face i i can i really can only have sympathy for you like that that's heartbreaking that you have decided that that is true um because it really is absurd uh, so when I saw it, um, my immediate response was that that's ridiculous. Um, there's been tremendous progress in this country and some coward who spray paints um, an, an expletive, a nasty word, a nasty phrase on your fence. Some some idiot who almost certainly was not dispatched by the by the by the rogues at Stormfront probably might not be like certifiably racist, might just be an idiot vandal um, who is doing it to get a rise. Um we give these people too much power uh, when we respond to this as though it is um, just the, the new racial watershed moment that we have to respond to forcefully. Um, and we should regard it for what it is. What's worse is at some point in his remarks, LeBron invokes Emmett Till um, and talks about his mother's decision to keep the casket open uh, in order to create uh, attention and, and really the civil rights movement. Uh, it, it begins with that act. The connection between that act and the the vandals who spray painted uh, some word on LeBron James's fence, uh, the distance between those things is so great um, as to make, make them almost completely unrelated to one another. You don't feel, Camille, as uh... You don't feel that, uh, that, you know, a similar thing, that as you have become successful in your life, that your blackness, which um, you disavow, but I imagine the point that others would make is that other people don't, that uh, you have been hobbled by this, 
in in your career since becoming uh, successful. Now you're not LeBron, Camille, but you're no. you're a mini LeBron. No, I've had I've had a little bit of success. If I if I if I would suggest that ninety nine point nine 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 seven percent of people in in the history of the human race would trade places with LeBron, about fifty percent would probably trade places with me. About fifty. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's, I it's not bad. <laughs> I, I, it's not bad. You know, that's, and that's only because they don't LeBron. know how good it is. Yeah, because it is quite good. But I think that um, to your point, no. yeah, we're in the era of overstatement. This is uh, maybe maybe it's not unique to now. Um, I'll probably take that back and just say we're in an era where the you can be a tribune of overstatement and people will pay attention to you, maybe in a way that they didn't before because you could do this online and you report that somebody spray painted something. I mean, I don't doubt that this happened to LeBron James. It. I've seen a lot of examples of this happening that turned out to be hoaxes. There's one I think that I saw recently that I sent you a message about Camille that I think a couple months ago that probably is a hoax and has just disappeared from the news because nobody does actually follow up on these things. But, you know, it's also when I was watching, um, I came across Democracy Now!, the Amy Goodman uh, you know, snooze fest on um, various uh, um, kind of lefty channels. Uh, she had uh, Tim Snyder on, the Yale professor, whom I have in the past had a great respect for, who wrote a couple of very, very, very good books uh, on the Soviet Union. Um, we, we may actually have him on the podcast next week. Oh, good, because I'd like to talk to him. Um, is the, uh, a book called Bloodlands, uh, which which I think is a, just a really terrific uh, work. And I think actually included in one of, a, a reason, my best book of the year, I think when I was, was doing that at one point. But Tim Snyder's new book um, is about the road to tyranny and barreling down that road and the, the comparisons uh, that he makes between Nazi Germany and so the Soviet Union, his two areas of study, and the current administration in the White House. I find this stuff to come up fairly consistent, consistently on left and right. I reviewed for reason a long time ago, Naomi Wolf's book on how fascism, the dark night of fascism had, had descended on the United States because of the Bush administration. There were 12, 10, 13, whatever she made points that um, would show that fascism was blossoming in the United States. Tim Snyder also has, I think, 20 points in his book of how fascism and how totalitarianism um, is not coming to the U.S., but but all the warning signs are there and to be vigilant against it. It offends me when somebody as smart as Tim Snyder makes these arguments because he actually understands the history. Naomi Wolf um, seems to have uh, been staring at Wikipedia for maybe two months and then wrote, uh, <laughs> her book was a bestseller. Tim Snyder tweeted the other day that his book is again, number one or number two or something like that on the New York Times bestseller list. It's in the top 10 at Amazon. Please cl click the link and buy it. He was on um, Bill Maher's show and these books sell exceptionally well. Now in the, let's not skip the Obama years where um, Maoism was coming to the United States or communism or some sure. extreme Chavismo form of socialism. This stuff sells. And it, it, it's unfortunate. I think that Tim Snyder has realized that and he's kind of walked back from being an academic and to being this person in, in this moment where we're in right now is an extreme overstatement. I mean, look, there are comparisons in that book and I've been flipping through it between, you know, the SS and the SA and paramilitary forces and watch out for paramilitary. In what planet 
do we see paramilitary forces descending upon the United States? Proud boys, man. Gavin's coming after oh, us. Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing is an absurdity, you know, on top of an absurdity wrapped inside a massive stupidity. And it's really, really offensive to me that you see historians like Snyder, who's a very, very, not a competent historian, he's a very, very talented historian, he's a, and I have a lot of respect for him, to see this book and like to see, to see LeBron James saying, you know, this is Emmett Till, which is a murder and a lynching in a point in American history where racism was a massive problem that was was tearing the soul of this country apart. I mean, you had governors preventing black students from from going into, you know, you know, James Meredith going into Ole Miss, these bombs blowing up churches, freedom riders being killed when they came from the north to the south to to show solidarity with people that were were facing real brutal violent discrimination. White freedom riders. White being freedom killed. riders being killed. Come yeah. on. People. Yeah. I mean to see all of this stuff compared, I think that and I, I've come back to this theme quite a bit on the show is that is that the danger of lazy historical analogy. I do appreciate Snyder saying that one must be informed of history to prevent the repetition of history. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Slight cliche, but there's a certain amount of truth to it. But if you're going to invoke this, you know, the Third Reich, if you're going to invoke the Soviet Union, you're going to say, you know, the war on the press in this country is essentially what it was in 1932 presaging the takeover of the press, which, by the way, happened in all that stuff happened in the first in the first year in 1933. I mean, there was the, the, the boycott of Jewish goods. And then all of a sudden there's the consolidation of power later in the year. You have the anti-Semitic laws that come in 1935. Kristallnacht comes in 1938. The death camps come in 1941. I mean, this is it's, it's leapfrogging. But it was really, really, really serious and authoritarian and political opposition was eliminated and political parties were banned. We are not seeing anything like that. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's important and incumbent upon a historian like uh, Tim Snyder and somebody also like LeBron James to talk about the things that aren't, the, the, aren't similar. That is the dissimilar things are almost as important as the similarities because there are so many similarities between historical events that have nothing to do with one another, right? You know, I mean, this is mm -hmm. the thing you see mm -hmm. in Naomi Wolf's book, you know, in she says, you know, they used to they, the Mussolini's shock troops may, uh, used to make people drink castor oil in the streets if they were considered, you know, disloyal. And then she compares that to the TSA uh, making a, a mother test the breast milk in the bottle. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, it's obscene. Like, it's obscene. And it's it, what one has to point out are the things that are nothing like that. And the first thing on the on the Snyder thing would be the incredibly robust free press we have that is receiving tons and tons of leaks every day from the very administration. The, 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 Nazi, the uh, Nazi dictatorship wasn't very leaky because they didn't have anyone to leak to because all the opposition press had been shut down. And on the LeBron James thing is that to keep an open casket, to show the world what is happening, it is profane. Uh -huh in pornographic to compare the brutal, disgusting murder of Emmett Till to some Yahoo spray painting something in your house who should be condemned and arrested for vandalism if he's caught. But God, in, please. In, in, uh, there's something there's something about I'm sorry, Matt. But, um, th there's something about the fact that 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 image was necessary 
to provoke Americans to sit up and take notice of the ugliness that was taking place in their society. Yeah. And it wasn't enough. Yeah. It took it took bloody marches. It took dead freedom riders. It took the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, and quite frankly, I, I mean, some would argue that it took some of the violence that took place um, in, in Watts and some of these other places for people to actually be serious enough about these issues to try to address them in some fundamental way. Mm. Contrast that with a society that is so aggressively anti-racist that saying the wrong thing, not deliberately, but inadvertently will get you fired, that the word that was spray painted on his house, we can't see an image of the vandalism. No one can utter the word publicly. That is the world we live in, where there is a 50-foot statue of Martin Luther King on the mall. And, and I say all of this on the day uh, when, or the day after anyways, a noose was found uh, apparently inside of the African-American History and Culture Museum. Um, a noose, I mean, that's ugly. That is a terrible thing to do. But again, a noose from whom we don't know. Anonymous asshole left a noose there. Um, but what is this place? What is this building, this sprawling structure? Uh, a what, $200 million, if, if not more, edifice? I mean, it, are you kidding me? Devoted specifically to highlighting the egregious, horrible things that have happened to African-Americans um, historically in this country? Quite frankly, in indulging in exaggeration, perhaps that's totally fine. And I, I, I did mean exactly what I said. It's Camille Foster speaking, not um, Michael Moynihan and Matt Welch. Oh, thank God. It's not a defense of racism, you stupid idiot. You can exaggerate <laughs> the degree to which something was terrible. You could exaggerate it by saying that it is unique when, in fact, my argument is that it is uh, it's it's a lot of the deprivations are somewhat universal. Um, and that is a problem. We should highlight the, uh, the how far we've come. I'm sorry, Matt. I stepped on your uh, on your thing. Uh, but I was actually I was just paying I, you paying you back. I'm going to lobby for uh, for bouncing out here pretty quick since we're uh, we're uh, we're getting uh, getting late. But before that and we're missing basketball and we're missing so. basketball uh, here. But uh, uh I uh, a little defensive LeBron James when your home is violated by someone um, uh, doing something ugly. One, one of your homes. Uh, one of, one one of, of your <laughs> many many homes. Uh, it doesn't. A state. We should call it an estate or maybe a compound. It doesn't. Uh, it, it's not not the greatest thing in the world. I recall uh, in the days of uh, Freedom Fries. Uh, in uh, 2002, 2003, when people were getting uh, really upset about France not going along with the Iraq war, um, uh, in our uh, old wooden uh, bungalow in uh, Silver Lake, California, which probably voted 99% for Al Gore uh, and uh, and 2% for uh, Ralph Nader in 2000, because um, you know, you know, there's you know, overvoting. Um, uh, we put up, uh, my French uh, uh, wife and I put up two flags in front of our house because there was a little flag holder. The American flag went on top and then we put up a French flag on the bottom just to say, hey, look, we're 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 uh, we're flying the colors, but we're also saying, hey, look, you know, uh, we uh, we appreciate uh, uh, both countries and both uh, cultures within 24 hours in Silver Lake, 
California, which I can't stress enough is basically like uh, Williamsburg in its politics or Park Slope, uh, probably better better said, uh, in uh, in Brooklyn. It's just a very, a very strong uh, uh, lefty kind of enclave. Within 24 hours on my wooden old house, uh, someone tried to burn the flag. Um <laughs> Uh, really? they, yeah, they lit it on fire. That's amazing. Uh, so, uh, and you know, if that fire would have spread, the house would have burned and that would have been kind of a bummer. And I had this feeling of, and it's, it's this extra kind but of, but it's not the Reichstag fire. It's not the Reichstag fire. Right. So I, I, under, I understand the feeling of my God, I've been violated and I, I don't live in the place that I thought I did. That feeling totally sucks. And at the same time, I was, you know, I, I, I was a person who wrote about things publicly then. And I wrote about that at the same time. And you have to keep your wits about you. This is like some asshole. Yeah, it's just overstatement. It's the danger of overstatement. Someone burned the flag. And Um, on, and on the, on the museum thing, just to be careful on this. And this is a this is the the result of people trying to make political points this is the 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 ultimate result of of um doing dumb things is that the news thing uh, we've had a number of, uh, of of these i can think of three off the top of my head where people mm-hmm. were um not making a racist point but trying to make a political point about racism and That's right. so it's all, always uh smart and incumbent upon <laughs> people who don't have an agenda to push that that we are uh you know indelibly racist and can't wash that stain out of our history and it's it's every kind of breath uh, confirms that if you don't have that point of view you just have to hang on a bit and say well who did this and 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 yeah. what was the point of them doing this it happened so at berkeley what i'm hearing a professor here at columbia yeah. what i'm hearing here is that you're accusing kyle corver of spray painting lebron james's house <laughs> i don't know who that is to motivate him to motivate him to win i i, 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 I just want to throw that out there as a possibility is he's he a, a basketball player yeah, he's a he's a, a teammate of uh, of uh, he's like a shaggy haired white uh, teammate of lebron james's no. who's sort okay, of like a seventh sense. a yeah. seventh man yeah uh, to like to, my my, my, my my theory is that the the rest the reason we haven't seen the photos because the rest of it is Steph Curry rules like that is what it says. <laughs> yeah. After, that, after that's the, what you can't abide by. Yeah. Um, the the quote in the um, or one of the the passages in the the Washington Post story about the noose is, but a noose inside the African American Museum was a disturbing reminder that our history of racial oppression and violence is far from over. Actually, you stupid idiot. No, it's not. Well, I mean, yeah, it, there's still violence. There's still violence. I mean, but, but, but it's, again, our, our again, it's, it's a matter of is far from over is stupid as hell. I, far from over. Never, is, is, it's never is, over. There will always be patches of that sort of horrible thing. But the truth is that that dark history, that past, that one like isn't um, it's this isn't even I don't even need an asterisk on that statement. Like it just it is so fundamentally different that it is obscene to write something like that because it i think it disparages the the actual hard fought battles that have been fought and quite frankly won that doesn't mean that there aren't ramifications history has ripple effects but but damn it are you kidding me how dense are you people i'm sorry no i'm i, I agree should I just, we uh, somebody wrote our way out of this thing I just, I just, she wrote that. The, yeah, some, that's, that's Camille's. Even say game. That's Camille's. I just uh, want to add, actually, I want to throw gasoline on the Camille fire here. Um, uh, and uh, knitting this back to the Cavs and four to our uh, Paris agreement to pull out ACLU national today, uh, tweeted out the following in response to the uh, Trump uh, pullout. Uh, 
pulling out of the Paris Agreement would be a massive step back for racial justice. Oh, yep. And an assault on communities of color across the U.S. Camille, do you think that's true? Um, no, but apparently Rick roll is sexist, racist, and transphobic. So I, I would, I would use a Rick roll in response to that. All right. There That's we go. Never gonna That's we. You up. Wow. Never gonna let <laughs> See, he's trying to top the, uh, who, who did he sing before? Uh, what James was, Taylor. Was James Taylor. Uh, James yeah. Taylor. He's in a, like a hotel room by himself in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Snuggling with pillows. Yeah. Yeah, while, uh, I'm gonna be in. I'm gonna be in my actually, uh, my junky uh, apartment, uh, snuggling a pillow, listening to like a, an old Moby Grape record, and uh, drinking <laughs> Boone's Farm in about 25 minutes. It's gonna be fucking amazing. Uh, some idiot. Speaking of music, um, uh, I will I will take the bait. I will fall for it. Uh, somebody tweeted it at me. I believe it was Amanda Marcotte, oh. who is an absolute factory of these things because um, she's. I, I don't. Uh, I don't understand if she does this, if she believes these sorts of things. But she wrote a piece um, uh, denouncing um, uh, Sergeant Pepper, resenting Sergeant uh, Pe- Pepper, because uh, she said it uh, ushered in a era of uh, male uh, music. Did you Did you read this, Matt? I did. I tried really hard not to. Ushered in the era of male music. I, you know, uh, Beatles, the Beatles' most legendary record, now turning 50, marked the moment when pop became serious fare for serious guys. That seemed to be sort of benign. Uh, but I'll give you just a random line I'm going to pull from it, and uh, we can leave it at that. Because anyone who hates themselves enough to uh, want to read this and you sort of make themselves sick, it is uh, a perfect... Um, compliment to your bulimia. Just eat a sandwich and read this. Sergeant Pepper's was the point when rock stopped being the music of girls and started being the music of men. And this is from a man, Marcotte, not a good thing. Uh, I don't know what it means, uh, but I always greatly enjoy uh, people writing about music who really don't understand music. And especially those who want to make a limp and partially incoherent political point. Um, I'm not entirely sure what hers is, so I'm going to have a contest. If anyone can read this and tell me what the fuck she's talking about, I would, uh, I'll buy you a drink, okay? Yeah, next time you come to the city, I will leave whatever I'm doing and buy you a drink if you can take Amanda Marcotte's Salon article. Um, Sergeant Pepper is a good pop record. Don't get me wrong, says Amanda Marcotte. Oh, oh, God. It's also not true. I, I, you know, it's actually not. It's, a, it's, the, it's, the, it's not the Beatles' best record by about six records. But anyway, if you can figure this out, please shoot me uh, a message um, on, on Twitter and um, I'll buy you a drink. If you, well, if you, you acknowledge that you took the bait. Yeah, there. of course I did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's all it's all about how um, there was, uh, you know, it was really a new era of misogyny in music after Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> I really have no fucking he idea. He did say, and, to, to be fair to Amanda Markell, you know, I, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that I loved. One of many Beatles directly misogynist lyrics, but not nearly as far as. Well, I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another is that, man. Is that, uh, is she, that actually did, she actually though? didn't even aren't quote you, that line. Yeah, no. But, why, but aren't why you saying she? that you used to be you used to be cruel? You're acknowledging that you were a bad person doing that thing. That's true. 
That is beyond the uh, title I think that's track. Radical feminism. I just want you to know that beyond the title track and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, there's very little on the record that makes a lady want to shake her hips on the dance floor. What? I, this is like this a salon should be taken over by the government and shut down today. Who I, goes I, on the dance floor to the I, Beatles? I, this again. This is I. Be, I'm going to become let's a chavista. Go, let's go dance to everyone's got something to hide except for me and my uh, monkey. Well, you know, why don't we do Did it in you? the road? Um, you know, look at disco for instance. Disco is classic girl music, or more accurately, music for girls and gay men. I mean, this is really where we've where we've landed when you have to churn out hot takes one a day to justify uh, inflated salary and anything over um, three dollars a year. A sort of Bangladeshi salary is too much for this repulsive writer. So anyway. That's that's I, like I, that was like a Rush Limbaugh end. Whatever misogynist. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a misogynist. Yeah. I hate bad well, writing. I don't hate women. I love I love great be, female writers. I hate bad you, writers. Can of you do that all in a Bor- Borat accent though? I don't do nothing on any accents for me. Okay. <laughs> I don't like the peppers of the sergeants. Very bad well, records. <laughs> well, I think I think we've done the Lord's work here. Yeah. Um, and the, the takeaway work. is clear. Um, after two hours. Um, women should stay in their place. Oh my God. That's not the takeaway. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Good God. And not just them, the coloreds too. Oh, d- um, please. Don't. <laughs> Nobody can see it's that you're black joke. on the radio. See, they, they, you, you, you're, you have to say that you have to black, you have to be more, not, co- you have to code switch. I think is what you call it. It's a joke. No, it's not. All right. Uh, I, I love you both. I love you I too. If I, if I don't make it back, if for some reason I don't get an upgrade and I, I have to jump out of the plane, um, I care about you. Yeah. I care about all of you as well, dear listeners. Yeah. Um, thanks to uh, the whole team. Thanks to all the folks that contributed. Dan Beer. Yeah, Dan had a, a eye surgery today. Oh. He's not like around this evening, so mm. he doesn't get thanked. Uh, but thanks to why, all of you. Why isn't he here? It's a radio show. You didn't have, Sorry, you didn't have ear surgery. Why is he here? It's, it's eye surgery. It's radio. Yeah, but he, it's like he's bleary eyed and I don't want to, I mean, do you want to deal with that? He's just like complaining and telling me how, how much it hurts and I have to pretend I care. Like, this is not fun. <laughs> I was going to make the worst joke ever, but go ahead. No, feel better, Dan Beer. Yeah, see, you're giving him too much. You have to keep, keep his expectations down. Um, and send us an email uh, and contact at uh, we the fifth.com visit us at we the fifth and hit us on uh, twitter and facebook at the same thing we the fifth um and, and we're done bye